following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So we're in the same verse we were in last Sunday. We'll be in this same verse two weeks from now. And this is Jude chapter 1, verse 11. Begins, woe to them, and this is the author of Jude reminding us about the false teachers. They're a problem in the church. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain, which we talked about last week. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. And depending on your translation, it might say Balaam's wandering, or you could even translate it Balaam's roaming into sin. And they've also been destroyed in Korah's rebellion, and Korah's who we'll talk about two weeks from now. So let's tell the story of Balaam. I'm not going to read all three chapters in Numbers that encompass the story. That's Numbers 22 to 25. I'm just going to give kind of an overview of what's going on with Balaam. And like we did last week, there's some fascinating things about this story that I think make the story pop. And by the time you get to the end, uh, some things come together that create a a nice tapestry of, of lots of things that might not be easy to see. So, the Jewish people have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're getting now close to the promised land. So, they're at the border of Moab, getting ready to enter Canaan. The Moabites are scared because the Jews have just defeated this group of people who were the guardians of the Moabites, and people called the Imori, at least that's the pronunciation I'm going to give it. So Moab joins Midian, and they get together, and they appoint this guy named Balak as king over both of them. Now, Balak seems to recognize that this is more than just a physical clash between different armies. There's a supernatural power struggle going on. So he hires Balaam. He hires Balaam from out of the east. And if you remember last year, we talked about themes or images in the Bible. East is generally where bad things happen. So here comes Balaam out of the east. And Balak is hiring Balaam because he wants Balaam to curse the Israelites. And so Balaam's apparently famous for blessing and cursing people. And typically, if you get famous for that, there seems to be some authority or some power with what you do. There's extra biblical materials from the time that would tell us that uh, Balaam had once prophesied about a coming devastation to the land, and it had come true. And these inscriptions, and if you go online and read the notes, I have a bunch of footnotes for this again. They found some inscriptions at a place with an unpronounceable name, but it's somewhere in the Middle East. And these inscriptions say that he, his knowledge to prophesy this destruction was based on the knowledge he got from gods called El and Shaddai. You may be familiar with that term. But Balak had a more pressing interest. Balaam had prophesied that Balak would become king, and Balak became king. In fact, the Midrash, which is Jewish writings, they claim that Balaam was the pagan equivalent of Moses. Now, when I say pagan, just think non-Israelite, because as the story unfolds, it seems clear that Balaam is used to talking to God. So there was some sense in which Balaam was interacting with God, but he was not an Israelite, and he had not been using um, his prophetic authority or power in ways that he should have, and that, unfortunately that trend will continue. So I think we want to think of this story as a showdown of powers. Almost, was it Elijah and the prophets of Baal? I can never remember. It was Jah or Shah, but one of the Elis and the prophets of Baal, supernatural power. Moses and the Egyptian sorcerers, a clash of power. And so I think the story is meaning, meaning to set up, here is Balaam coming against Moses. 
And by the time we get to the end of the story, you're going to see some more intersections there. So Balak, he asked Balaam to curse Israel in exchange for reward. But Balaam says, I need God's permission. And this seems like a serious response. So Balaam goes to God, and if you read the text, Balaam, at least the text makes it seem as if he's not aware that these are a special people. He just says, um, hey, I had this request, and God says, who are these men making this request to you? So this isn't God being confused, right? This is God inviting a conversation. Like he said to Adam, what have you done? Like he said to Cain, where is your brother? This is God inviting a conversation. He says, who are these men? And Balaam steps up to the plate. He's honest. He tells God they want him to curse these people so he can drive them out. And at least in the text, he's like, there's this group of people coming in, and they want to take over the land, and, and Balak doesn't want them to take over the land, so can I curse them? And God's response is very clear. Quote, you must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So Balaam goes back to these emissaries from Balak, and he says, yeah, I can't go. God's not going to let me go. But he doesn't tell them why, and this will become important later. He doesn't tell them that he's not allowed to curse them. He just said that God said no. So these emissaries go back. Balak sends more distinguished officials, and he promises this fantastic award. Uh, it seems as if he thinks Balaam's just playing hard to get here. He wants more money. So Balaam goes, all right, let me ask God again. So he goes and asks God again. And then God says, go with them, but do only what I tell you. So let's note something. Balaam had already asked God if he could do it, and God said, no, you're not going to curse them. They're people that I'm blessing. But Balaam goes back and asks again. The, the money has gone up. Uh, he doesn't need to ask again. God already gave him an answer, but he does. And it seems as if God decides, all right, I'll use you for my purposes to bring glory and a blessing to my people. So, sure, go. But he says, only say what I tell you to say. So Balaam goes back to these officials and he says, hey, God gave me permission, which is true, but it's not honest. Because God did give him permission to go, but there was a stipulation. You only say what I want you to say, and Balaam does not tell them that. So these guys go, awesome, let's go back, assuming Balaam is going to come along and curse Israel. And as best I can tell, this is the problem for which the angel is dispatched, which is the next part of the story. That is, Balaam has left open the possibility of cursing, almost as if, um, he's asked God, he recognizes the tent, but he's not being honest because maybe this will work out, he can find some way to do it. There, that seems to be the element, kind of a, a simmering and undermining dishonesty in the story. So the next morning, Balaam saddles up his donkey, he leaves for Moab, and God sends an angel to oppose him. So as he's going, three times his donkey does this weird response. The first time, the donkey veers off a path. The second time, they're going through a vineyard and there's walls and the, the donkey suddenly moves to the side and scrapes Balaam's ankle and hurts his ankle. And then the third time, the donkey just lays down the road and quits going. So this is um, where the donkey is seeing the angel and Balaam's not seeing the angel. Note, by the way, this is three times the donkey does this. You'll see later there's three times that Balaam blesses Israel. 
So Balaam gets angry and he takes out his staff and he beats the donkey. If we're looking for Moses' connections, like Moses took out his staff and he struck the rock that wasn't obedient. And then a strange thing happens. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and the donkey rebukes Balaam. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and Balaam saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. Uh, and we pick up here with a paragraph from Scripture. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is, reckless, is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared the donkey. So I think, and this is just what I think, that this is what the prophet Nathan did to King David when he told him a parable about the sheep, and then at the end of the parable he says, thou art the man. I think it's worth considering that Balaam is the donkey. And God is opposing him. The angel said, I oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Uh, I, I think that might be Balaam. His path is a reckless one. And basically the angel is telling Balaam, you need to take heed. If you don't turn aside, God will kill you. And I think that idea is if you don't turn aside from your plan, and this goes back to I think the underlying current is Balaam's thinking he could still work a curse in. If you don't turn aside from your plan, you're in trouble. Uh, commentators have a lot of fun with this section because it's kind of a strange section. I'm just going to read uh, from two different people. The fundamental mockery of Balaam is obvious. The one perceived to be able to control the Israelites with words could not even control his donkey with a stick. The one who claimed to be a seer of the unseen could not even see what the donkey saw. The one who was the wise among the wise was beaten in a spoken exchange by the dumbest of animals. Another person said, the story is about the folly of human ego, self-destructively preoccupied with its own agenda instead of discerning God's. It is, according to the parable sequence, about being rerouted, squeezed, and finally stopped until you get your eyes opened and you see what's really going on. And here's where the story takes a really good turn in that Balaam, unlike Cain, when God confronted Cain, Balaam owns this. And when he's done with this conversation, he says, and this seems to be a sincere expression, I have sinned. I have sinned. I'll go back right now if you want me to go back. But the angel says, no, actually, just do what the plan was. Say only what God will tell you to say. And when Balaam shows up with King Balak, he does tell King Balak this now. You need to know, I can only tell you what God tells me to say. So we're in Moab. And Balak takes Balaam up to a high place called Bamoth Baal. And he could see all of Israel from this point. He tells him, curse the Israelites. But Balaam can't. He gives a blessing. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? All right, so from Balak's perspective, that's not good. So Balak has him try again, this time from Mount Pisgah. And here's your Moses connection again. Mount Pisgah is the, mo the mountain where God takes Moses so that he could see the promised land, even though he couldn't enter it. So now Balaam is on Mount Pisgah, and again, he speaks a blessing. I've received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. So Balak tries one more time on top of Mount Peor. They really like mountains. 
and we'll see this mountain come up again in a little bit. And this time, the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke his message, how beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel, which is a famous verse to uh, Jewish people for centuries now. How beautiful are your tents and your dwelling places. So Balak's had it. He tells Balaam, all right, go home. Thanks to your God, you don't get the money. And Balaam reminds him that uh, he had told the king, I can only say what God says to me. But, Balaam says, if you would go after Israel with idolatry and what's probably temple prostitution because this kind of idolatry involved uh, that kind of act for worship, if you do this, they'll bring judgment on themselves. I don't have to be the one to pronounce a curse. The Israelites will curse themselves. So Balak goes, I like this plan. So he gets the women of Midian to begin to seduce the men of Israel to sexual sin, to sacrifice to their gods. And Israel begins worshiping Baal of Peor, which is the last mountain that Balaam stood on when he pronounced a blessing to the Israelites. Then in a later battle, we see uh, Balaam is fighting with the Midianites against the Israelites, the very people that he had spoken a blessing on. He goes to fight against them, and he is slain by the ones he had tried to curse. So if Balaam is the donkey, he didn't learn. The angel had warned him, take heed. If you don't turn aside, God will kill you. And in this case, he didn't turn aside, and he went into battle with the people of God, and it cost him his life. So that's the story of Balaam. There's some interesting connections with Cain. So like Cain, Balaam believes in God. He wasn't what we would today think of as an atheist, and it seems as if both Cain and Balaam, and we'll see when we talk about Korah, they all had some type of acknowledgement of Yahweh. But then like Cain, he goes against God's will, and then like Cain, he talks with God about it. But then unlike Cain, he repents, and he actually becomes an instrument of God's blessing. The story takes a great turn right there. It, it looks like this could end well. But like Cain, it doesn't change his heart. And like Cain, he eventually destroys his brothers. The Israelites were certainly distant relatives. Uh, and so it ended in death, just like it did with Cain. Or it, the death I'm talking about is the judgment of God on the Israelites because of their idolatry. So the writer of Jude warns about the error or the wandering of Balaam. So let's nail down what that is. It's selling out or exploiting God's people for financial gain. So Jude, he associates Balaam with the selling of one's soul for financial gain. Peter compared false teachers to Balaam, who said, who loved the wages of wickedness. Then you read in Revelation 2, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak for money to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And this is what the false teachers were doing. They were rushing for profit into Balaam's error, which is selling out or exploiting God's people for financial gain. And if you know the history of the early church, the early church was filled with what we would call nowadays marginalized people, the very poor, those who kind of lived on the outskirts of society filled the early church. They were the ones most in need of a financial kind of stability. And here were these false teachers coming in and they were getting rich off of people under the guise of ministry. So I think this is a pretty clear warning about giving into the allure of money. 
And while it's specifically about people in ministry, so we would say pastors, church leaders, uh, those leading parachurch organizations, someone who's publicly representing God, the clear warning here is God's people are not intended to make you rich. You are intended to give to them. But I think the broader thing is that the Bible is clear that wealth and the Christian exist in significant tension. And I'm just going to give you a number of verses here because that's a big thing to throw out. And I know it can make us nervous because a question that will come to mind is, are you saying money's bad? I'm not saying money's bad and I'm not saying wealth is bad. But just listen to me go through this because I think Jude is highlighting this, that wealth and the Christian exist in significant tension. Mark 4, 19, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things, they come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Proverbs 23, 4 to 5, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Don't trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. James 5, beginning in verse 1, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. he who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous shall flourish as the green leaf. Luke 8, 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, by riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Luke 12, 15, that he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 1 Peter 5, 2. This is to shepherds of God's flock. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. And my last passage is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." Okay, I went through all those verses because I want to make sure I'm laying the biblical foundation here. So I don't want to give you Anthony's opinion. I want to give you the Bible's opinion. In every biblical window into the community of the life of God's people, 
God's generous provision of all kinds was expected to be passed on as God's people become generous providers to take care of God's image bearers and bring about God's purposes in the world. Now, this is, of course, as we are able because we are all in different circumstances. The gift of a dollar might re reflect a more generous heart and a more surrendered heart than a gift of $1,000. But you know your situation. I don't know your situation. You know your heart. I don't know your heart. But Luke 12, 48 is clear. To whom much is given, much is required. Once again, that's not my opinion. It's a biblical opinion. As God gives us, the expectation is that God's people pass on the generosity that God has given to us. And that's why I say that wealth and the Christian exist in significant tension. It's not that Christians can't be wealthy if the wealth is arrived at justly. And in fact, the reason churches can exist is because people are making money and they're giving money so a church can exist. The reason charitable organizations and missionary organizations and why uh, what we support in Costa Rica and Haiti, and I'm saying them too fast, I'm going to forget the other play, uh, Sal and Heather, the reason they can be supported to do their ministry is because God is blessing you with money. So money's not the issue. God is blessing you with money. And he's giving you money so that his purposes in the world can be achieved. So I'm just saying there's going to be a tension. It's going to be a tension because the allure to see it as ours and to want to get more and more and more simply for ourselves is strong. Uh, the Bible speaks about money, I think, more than any other issue. I believe there's over 2,000 verses. It's easily the number one thing in the Bible that creates a tension. But I have a couple of examples, um, some from outside our church and some from inside our church, where I have seen people, uh, average Christians, but also leaders in church ministry, who have ordered their life in such a way that this trap, this error of Balaam, does not come against them. So I'm, I'm going to give you four examples from names you might recognize. And uh, using these names doesn't mean everything about these people are perfect. It just means that in this situation, I think they did something with a lot of biblical wisdom to make sure they avoid the error of Balaam. So, Rick Warren, after he published Purpose Driven Life, he reimbursed his church for all the salary he had ever taken from Saddleback. And then he and his wife began reverse tithing. That is, they started keeping 10% of their income and giving away 90%. If you're familiar with Chuck Colson, he ran um, a prison ministry for years, and I can't think of the name of the ministry now. What was it? Prison Fellowship. Prison he gave all his publishing royalties, and he had numerous bestsellers. He gave all his publishing royalties to Prison Fellowship. Oh, it's right there in my notes, Jules, thanks. Um, Randy Alcorn, he's fairly famous for books he's written on heaven and quite a few things. He gives much of his royalties to, I think it's his ministry, which is called Eternal Perspective Ministries. That ministry has given away $5.5 million, and most of it is from royalties that Randy Alcorn could have put in his pocket. If you all remember Keith Green, Keith Green was a Christian singer, and he made a lot of money. I forget what business he was in, and then he became a, a Christian singer, and he would give away albums for free, and he would give away concert tickets for free. If you couldn't afford it, he simply gave it to you because he didn't need the money. And so he passed on that kind of generosity. So here's the beautiful thing. 
it's clear how we avoid this trap. I mean, the Bible makes it clear, but then you see it in real life as well. And it's simply two things, financial contentment and generosity. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Over and over, read it over and over. Be, be content, be content. It doesn't mean we don't work and have jobs, but uh, okay, am I going to accept um, what God has gifted me with? Uh, and this is where Message Plus could be beautiful because we could talk about the importance, uh, all the other Bible verses about being good stewards and all that type of stuff. I get that. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. That's verse 8. So contentment is one thing, and then generosity is the next thing. But it's two things the Bible gives us, and it gives us this over and over in different ways, financial contentment and generosity. Now, I want to be clear about something. I'm not giving you this sermon from Scripture because I want you to start sinking more into our church. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine, and I, oh, I want us to keep paying the bills. But I, my point is broader than that. What I'm, what I'm challenging is, do we have a, a heart and a lifestyle that is focused on being generous purposefully so that we avoid this error of Balaam, that we make sure money is not sinking its teeth into us? So this has to do with a heart and a lifestyle committed to generously sharing what God has given us. And I think that's the biblical process in which we're freed from the love of money. I mean, let's pray too. I, that's part of our prayer life is, oh God, uh, I want to serve you, not mammon. Keep that idol away from me. But I think then it's the process of ordering our life such that one of our spiritual habits is generosity. So that we recognize when God brings money into our hand, uh, that's God's money. Now we got to figure out as good stewards, what do we do with it? We have our own responsibilities close to home. But what does it look like to always be thinking generously? And I, I have a couple examples from within our church these last four months that are just really exciting to me. Uh, many of you I know have been sharing your money within this church and in the communities in ways that are never going to show up on a spreadsheet. Nobody else in this room is going to know that you did it. Uh, I, I do for some of you because a number of you have contacted me and said, I want to help someone in need right now. Who's in need? Over the past four months, we've had a modest food pantry. And every time I've said we're getting down in food, it has filled back up. Some points where I want to go slow down. But I don't want you to slow down. Uh, by the way, I'll be asking you again in a couple weeks. But we have kept that full. Our church budget has been healthier since COVID hit than it probably was for years before. And one of the things that tells me is that in times of crisis, it, it looks like as a body, and I don't know all of your individual stories, but as a church body, it has inspired in us generosity. Uh, that. Uh, it makes me really happy. I just think that is exactly what the Bible intends or what God intends for his people to do in those moments. We aren't people who retreat. We're people who go into whatever's out there. And in this case, it, there's been some nervousness. Nobody knows even yet where the economy's going to go. I mean, you know, there's a lot of speculation. It's going to get worse before it gets better, and I don't know. Uh, but I just want to tell you, I feel like our church body response biblically was just a really good sign that 
we, uh, we are surrendering this part of our life to God. And so once again, I'm not attaching amounts to this. The Bible doesn't have a template. I'm not going to give you a template. And the reality might be that you're in a season where you need to be receiving the generosity of others right now. And I hope if that's the case that there's, you don't feel guilt or you don't feel shame or you don't feel embarrassment. That's just life, right? I'm talking about cultivating a lifestyle of looking for ways to be more generous rather than less generous as God enables us to do it. And I think when we do that, that's a sign that the love of money hasn't taken root in our hearts. And that's a sign that this error of Balaam is not tripping us up. So as with Cain, God shows us the way out. Balaam's story is a warning, obviously, but warnings don't do any good if you're not told how you can avoid the thing you're being warned about. And God's revelation is clear. Be content and be generous. If love covers a multitude of sins, I suspect generosity helps us to avoid a multitude of sins. And like I said, I think the last four months have shown us to be a generous church. And uh, I love it. And my sense, well, it's not just my sense. The Bible makes clear God is pleased. He loves a cheerful giver. And so my prayer this morning is that I, I don't know what's coming up in the next couple months or the next year. I have no idea what the ripple effect economically is going to be within our church and within our community and around the world. So my prayer is just that we continue to honor God through the faithful surrender of all those things that compete for our souls. And I'll throw this last thing out since Jude is addressing leadership in the church. And I said this last week with the with the, uh, the way of Cain. If you think that leadership in the church is going the way of Cain, please come to us who are in leadership and tell us. If you're nervous about it, get somebody else and come with us and tell whatever it takes. You, you have that biblical responsibility and that biblical right. And I'll just put this out there as well for the error of Balaam. If you think the error of Balaam is sneaking into this church's leadership, please, for the love of God, tell us. We want to know if you have that concern. Um, I am confident in the way the church is set up in terms of um, organization and oversight. And because I know the people that are in leadership, I feel really good about where our church is in this. Um, but we're human beings. And if you see us sliding in a direction that looks uncomfortably like that, I really, really hope that you have the courage to come approach us with grace and truth. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, I really hope that's the case, so. All right, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for your revelation to us. There's so much to glean from your word that even in these stories we see of how things went bad, we learn about what your path is and what the way is to life and to holiness and to righteous living. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we are inspired by the story of Balaam, uh, to not fall in his error and not fall, follow in his way. But Lord, let money be a nothing more than a tool you give us to use for your glory. May you help us to understand what that means as we process what we do with our budgets, how we be responsible stewards while looking for ways to be generously present in the world on your behalf. 
Uh, and Lord, I, I pray that this is not an idol that trips us up, but we can learn to be content and to find our fulfillment and our true riches in what you offer us through your son, Jesus Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.